welcome to Casey Cast, the Annie E. Casey Foundation's podcast. I'm Lisa Hamilton, Vice President of External Affairs at the Foundation, and I'm so glad you've joined us for a hopefully inspiring and interesting conversation. The Casey Foundation focuses on giving kids what they need, strong families, vibrant communities, and financial stability. In these efforts, the Foundation is fortunate to work with innovators who advance solutions to help kids thrive. Each month, we'll bring you an in-depth conversation with one of these experts, right here on CaseyCast. Improving outcomes for kids takes the energy of people with the skills, persistence, and experience to work together to untangle complex problems. For this reason, The Casey Foundation works to develop leaders, including today's guest, who have the capacity to create lasting change for kids and families. Today, I am thrilled to welcome Jeff Edmondson to the podcast. Jeff has spent his career jump-starting collaborations to achieve better results for children and has become a thought leader on scaling for impact. As the founder of Strive Together, Jeff Edmondson is dedicated to bringing community partners together to support the success of every child, from cradle to career. Strive Together emerged from a flagship partnership in Cincinnati and has grown under Jeff's leadership into a national nonprofit network that now reaches 8 million children across 31 states. Welcome, Jeff. Thanks so much, Lisa. I'm really looking forward to the discussion. Well, why don't we start by having you explain the work of Strive Together and what its communities do for those who might not be familiar with your organization. So Strive Together is a network now of, uh, actually, as of today, 73 communities across the country. Um, All those communities have cross-sector partners from the education, business, nonprofit, philanthropic, and civic sectors who've come together uh, around two things. Number one, they've all agreed that there's six core outcomes uh, that they need to see improved consistently over time. In essence, if you think about it, in the health sector, your vital sign is your pulse. Uh, in education, uh, these six outcomes would be considered the vital signs of, of a community's educational health. Um, and those are kindergarten readiness, early grade reading, middle grade math, high school graduation, college entrance, and degree completion. And all the 73 communities have agreed to collect data on those outcomes at least annually, disaggregate the data, and set targets. So that's the first thing. All 73 communities have embraced those outcomes. The second thing is that they're all using a common methodology. Um, It is something we call the theory of action. Uh, If you want to go to our website, strivetogether.org, you can find it. Every single community, all 73, are assessed annually on, that, on where they stand within that methodology getting towards systems change. And our goal is, is that we would have more and more communities that see at least four of those six outcomes continually trending in the right direction. And our hope is, is that over time, um, in, in all 73 of those communities, but also beyond that, we can start showing communities how they can stop pointing just at Uh, early childhood centers or just at school systems or just at higher ed uh, systems that are all critical players, but stop blaming them for any educational shortcomings we may have and start to own the role that they play, each individual, whether they're a philanthropist or a nonprofit or a social service provider or a, uh, a community advocate. Everybody has a role to play and that we would start to see communities starting to take accountability and accepting responsibility 
for how they can collectively move towards results. Jeff, this is so exciting to hear that uh, so many communities around the country are thinking of ways uh, that they can work collectively. And in fact, you've uh, become uh, uh, an author and, and thought leader around this issue of collective impact. Could you explain a bit about what collective impact is different from uh, collaboration? And what do you think has uh, sparked this new approach to solving problems uh, facing our kids? Yeah, it's a, it's a great great question, and we get asked it a lot. And we would say that there's four key differences between collaboration and collective impact. And I want to say that collaboration is very appropriate and um, you know, uh, impactful you know, at certain times. So the four differences are that partners are not coming together around a specific program or initiative. They're coming together around measurable outcomes. But the community is coming together to say, we're not necessarily looking to do something new right away. We're not necessarily looking for money right now. We are looking to improve a specific outcome and figure out how we could do that collectively. Um, the second difference is that you're not using data to just prove things. Uh, doing a long-term evaluation, for example, you may still do that, but you would also be using data to improve things. Um, so data is being used as uh, Amy Gadara of the Data Quality Campaign said data is being used as a flashlight instead of a hammer. So you're actually uncovering what works and then organizing the community around what already works in order to build on those successes. And then where there's clear outages, you may innovate, but you're starting by using data as that flashlight to uncover and build on what works. The third difference is that, you know, in collaboration, it's often people coming together and adding one more thing to their plate. And, and with collective impact, the, the, whether it's teachers or program providers or philanthropists or corp, uh, corporate partners, everybody should be getting data to inform what they do every day differently instead of it being one more thing on top of everything else. Uh, once again, using data as a flashlight to say, hey, this works. How does that apply or inform your work every day, not adding that, that one more item uh, to your to-do list? And then last but not least, when you're really clicking on collective impact, when you're really moving, um, you're not just uh, uh, advocating for things that may have worked in another community. You're actually able to speak with authority, with confidence, on what is working in your own community. Um, that's, those are really the four key differences, using, organizing the community around outcomes, using data as a flashlight, making sure you're changing what you do every day, not adding one more thing on top of everything else, and then knowing and being able to spread what works in your own hometown. And how do you think that communities realize they needed to be doing something different? And what role does Strive Together as an organization play in um, serving as the glue for this, this process? Yeah, I think across the country you're starting to see people say, okay, we can be frustrated with the status quo, but if we're just talking with each other and coordinating the things that we're already doing better, that's one step, but if we don't get more intentional and more purposeful about actually you know, potentially refining what we're doing individually and acting in a more purposeful way collectively, we may not see those changes because we're really just doing what we're already doing. We're just doing it in a more aligned and coordinated way. So I think there was just a general frustration with the status quo, and the communities are starting to see that, that we, need to, we need to approach things in a, in a much more intentional way. And our role uh, at Strive Together is we typically 
you know, we, we have communities call us up, and it could be the mayor, it could be a superintendent, it could be a philanthropist, a corporate leader, a, a community advocate, a grassroots advocate that just says, I, I'm sensing this frustration. I'm sensing that, you know, traditional collaboration, as it's been defined, isn't getting us where we want to go, and there seems to be some energy around this more purposeful alignment. And, and that's really where the theory of action that I described comes in, because it gives a roadmap. It's not a model. It's not a one-size-fits-all uh, you know, technical set of steps, but it gives a framework within which a community can start to organize itself and actually move towards this, this aspirational collective impact, because quite frankly, a lot of the stuff that people are talking about as collective impact nationally is really just collaboration. Um, but, but I think the, the theory of action sort of captures in many ways those the differences and the key steps that are needed in order to get um, in order to get to this this really intentional purposeful way of working together and, and if they end up if a community ends up using that theory of action to guide their uh, their work they can then become a member of the network and that's where you benefit from learning across a host of organizations all 73 across the country about what they're doing to navigate the many pitfalls of this work. So how are you seeing communities operate differently on the ground? How are they shifting uh, their services or programs in, in order to achieve these results? Yeah, so I think probably our biggest lesson, and we talk a lot about failing forward in this work of uh, you know, collective impact at the community level, there are a lot of mistakes that are made. And I think the number one mistake we made actually was something the health sector has known for years because um, they've been using data in this rigorous way to, to inform practice for, for a lot longer than we have. Um, and essentially that lesson is, is that you, you have to start small uh, to have impact at scale. Um, and the, the, essentially when I was the leader of the Cradle to Cure Partnership in Cincinnati, we wanted to do everything big. We wanted to, for example, create career plans for every single kid in the district. Uh, or we wanted to make sure that, you know, every, you know, from day one, that every single early childhood center had a quality uh, prepared teacher. Uh, but we didn't have a mechanism to do it. <laughs> so when we made the announcement, we couldn't make it happen. Um, I, think, I think what we've learned in this, in this work is that you always need to focus on a result, whether it's uh, kindergarten readiness or college enrollment. And then you have to actually start small, but rapidly, not annually, rapidly, week to week, month to month, improve upon your practices. In Cincinnati, Ohio, they looked at the local data and they saw that having a certified teacher and a low student-teacher ratio um, was, it was dramatically, uh, or led to dramatically better results for kids entering kindergarten, right? Just, mm -hmm. I mean, exponentially better results when the kids, especially low-income kids, um, uh, we're in a quality early childhood environment with a, with a certified teacher and a low student-teacher ratio. They, over time, through the work of our local United Way, gradually expanded the number of centers that had those certified teachers. They, they were able to constantly assess what was it about those teachers that made the difference, what was it about the low student-teacher ratio. They, we, we developed a methodology locally, and I say we just as a member of the community, but you know, all these key partners work together to figure out how to certify teachers. And eventually the school district said, you know, as part of a tax levy, we will hold aside 15 million of 48 million to support quality early childhood centers 
that meet the standard that we know works for kids. So here you had a school district that itself needs resources saying, we'll set aside $15 million that may not even come to the district. It may go to nonprofit quality preschools. It may go to other social services that, that operate quality preschools. So it sounds like starting small is a huge takeaway you've had about how to achieve results at scale. Have there been other lessons learned about how to uh, scale what works? Absolutely. I think the biggest one other than that would be is that you know, when people read the original Collective Impact article uh, that, was in the, that was in the Stanford Social Innovation Review, which was an incredibly powerful article, but as we tell everybody, it was a sanitized version of reality um, <laughs> because it just, you know, the, the way it was described in Cincinnati, it made it feel like everybody was singing kumbaya and, and agreeing with each other when every day there was conflict. Um, the biggest thing was that, you know, from that article, it talked about a backbone organization. And a lot of communities have tried to do collective impact where they hire four or five staff to be that backbone organization. And they figure that those four or five staff are somehow going to, you know, individually as a group, as four or five people achieve collective impact. And the biggest thing we've learned is that that can't happen. Hmm. Uh, the role of those four or five staff are not to do collective impact. The role of those four or five staff are to lift up what works and then work with individual partners to change their everyday behavior. So we've adopted what you know, the Annie Casey Foundation has developed and called the results-based leadership. And one of the core ethics in that is that you have to give the work back to the group. So when you decide you want to improve kindergarten readiness, Again, the role of the four or five staff isn't to somehow magically find the perfect intervention that's going to improve kindergarten readiness. The role of the staff is to say, hey, partners, we know having a certified teacher works. What is your role? What is the role of the district? What is the role of the nonprofit? What is the role of the philanthropist? What is the role of the public official? What is the role of the corporate partner? But if you look at the backbone staff alone as, 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 as if they're going to make collective impact happen, you're quite frankly never going to see the results improved. Hmm. Um, one of the articles we wrote was called the, the Irony of Collective Impact. And essentially the irony is, is that it depends more on the individual's change in behavior than it does in the collective working together. Um, and that, that's often very hard for people to understand because they really do just want um, some sort of magic bullet that's going to make everything better. Hmm. That's fascinating. So you mentioned the foundation's uh, results-based leadership approach, and you've worked to embed that within your organization. Could you say a bit more about uh, what the impact of that has been and um, why you think it has uh, improved the way that you do your work? Yeah, it's... Um it's 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 been an, I mean I can't the word the word transformative is thrown out there all the time uh, but I I just have to say to you that it it truly has been transformative. Um, so the first step on that journey was I was a part of the Annie K Casey Foundation's Family and Children Fellowship, and I learned about results based leadership and quite frankly I didn't embrace it. Um, it seemed like a lot of jargon to me, um, didn't make a lot of sense. And then about a year later. We were, we were working with a community that was struggling, that, was, that wasn't able to get past talk to real action. And I was reflecting on my own work in Cincinnati where as the leader of the Backbone team, we were doing most of the work and most of the partners were showing up and telling us what to do. <laughs> and what I, what I remembered was that, that concept of giving the work back to the group, of, of 
of having a result, very clear, kindergarten readiness, early grade reading, putting it right up front in the room, and then asking the partners what their role is versus ours. And I went back to the foundation and, and we ended up having a long conversation about how we could build a training for the communities to, to start giving the work back to the group, to start looking at data um, and really um, starting to challenge them to use that data to change their behavior. And that, that seemed to be going well, but very quickly people started to say, okay, great, you're asking us to change our behavior. How is your organization modeling this? And quite frankly, we had no moral authority to be asking communities to use data in this way if we weren't using it internally ourselves. And so we ended up training our entire staff in results-based leadership, specifically results-based facilitation. And in our organization now, everything we do uh, it all focuses on how does it connect to the six to those six core outcomes moving? How does it connect to helping communities make progress in the theory of action? And everybody in the organization understands their role related to those two points, advancing communities in the theory of action and improving those six outcomes. And then we collect data consistently and have uh, regular meetings to review that data on the progress that's being made and our contribution to it. Um, Having our staff fully trained up, we now have two people uh, that are certified to do results-based leadership training. We are also getting trained in continuous quality improvement so that we, we have the skills, but again, uh, the moral authority because we're practicing internally continuous quality improvement mm -hmm. um, to, to, really, to really work with communities and, and you know, have the experience to say, you know, we're trying to do the exact same thing that we're preaching um, I can just say that I, I quite frankly believe the collective impact movement will, the success of it will depend on whether or not uh, community partners actually embrace uh, one results, so holding themselves accountable for those results, and two, whether they embrace these competencies of using data for improvement, of facing or leaning into equity conversations, uh, and being able to navigate um, real uh, solutions and, and uh, interventions that get to uh, get at the heart and the root of equity challenges. Um, adaptive leadership, understanding the needs uh, that, that, it, that communities uh, have around changing their behavior every day, not just showing up at meetings. If we don't focus on these competencies um, and really build those, I don't think the collective impact movement itself will survive. Hmm. So you talked a lot about the Focus on data and uh, how that has really improved your work internally and, and that of your communities. Um, what, is a, what are the best practices you've learned about uh, how organizations can focus on data collection and use, and what missteps do you see people making in that regard? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's, it's one of the key technical challenges in this, and I think the biggest the biggest misstep or maybe it's a misconception is that data collection is all about the, the technology tool, right? So, so a lot of communities have gotten enamored of paying for, you know, data aggregation systems that are really complex and, and they're waiting for that perfect um, data aggregator to, that, that will gather both programmatic data about delivery. So, you know, what type of tutoring has been delivered and, and how long has it been delivered and 
um, what topic was covered, they want all that to be entered into a single data system that can then be connected to the result. And I want that too. Um, that is what we need, and I believe that we're going to get there within the next, you know, three to five years. That will exist, and and we even, you know, we even tried to 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 create something like that ourselves, but we spent a considerable amount of time and energy on it. What, but I think we need to let those things form. The the key here is again starting small, starting slow, to understand what is the easiest outcome data to collect. Mm-hmm. Um, so it could be say early grade reading, and then what's the easiest Contributing, interdata, contributing indicators that are connected to that, something like attendance that you mm-hmm. can get regularly. Mm-hmm. And then what are the five or six data points on your programmatic activities? Not 200 data points, but what are the five or six data points on your programmatic activity that if you collected them could actually inform taking a different action, right? So it could be how frequently are you reaching out to kids uh, individually about attendance? What mechanisms? Is it telephone calls? Is it visits to their house? What, what are the action, what, what programmatic data could be collected that could then inform action? So it, it really does go back to that lesson of starting small to go fast and, and, and finding ways to collect data on your outcomes, on contributing indicators, but most importantly, collecting relevant data on your programmatic delivery and, and not a lot of data points, just a few um, to make sure that you're actually able to inform action. Hmm. You mentioned in an earlier answer about uh, um, commitment to racial equity and how data can help uh, organizations think about how to develop solutions. Could you talk a little about uh, the uh, challenge and, and maybe the uh, issues you've had in, in trying to address racial equity with communities? Yeah, I, I think I, I, it's, our network is likely going to be focused. Uh, we, we've had a five-year goal of uh, establishing what we're, we called five proof point communities by October of 2018. Um, and those are communities that see four of those six outcomes I mentioned earlier improving and see have evidence of systems change. And that was great. And I believe we're going to meet that goal in October of 2018. I think our next five-year goal, uh, based on all the feedback from the network uh, that we've been getting over the last three years, about where they want to go, it's going to be uh, not only are those outcomes improving consistently, but are um, disparities closing? Are 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 um, are we able to actually see uh, all boats rise as a result of our work um, and make sure that the most vulnerable children, in particular, um, low-income minority students, often often are seeing their results improve. Um, and first and foremost, that takes the courage to disaggregate data and, and set targets, not just in the aggregate, so not just for everybody in early grade reading, but to set targets for those, uh, those populations that, that may be further behind and that we know we need to focus on. So um, that may mean that for African-American boys, if you know, we're at 25% in a community, there needs to be an aggressive goal set um, uh, for those for those kids that may be different than the population as a whole and calling that out. And, and then once you call that out, then you have to be able to na- navigate questions of, of what works for, in that case, African-American boys and how are resources going to be a- allocated differently. Um, and the, you know, there's one, I, many of your listeners may have heard this, sort of the difference between um, equality and equity 
And, you know, equality being is that in many cases, it's that peanut butter approach that I talked about, everybody getting the same thing. Equity means that you may have to have discussions of certain kids getting more resources or more investment than other kids based on the challenges that they face. And there are a set of competencies uh, that are a part of results-based leadership that individuals can learn where you are able to help communities navigate those conversations so that when they are thinking about what they want to focus on, what they want to prioritize, they, they hopefully, and in many cases we have seen, are willing to take a differentiated approach where they may have some strategies for the whole population, but other strategies for specific populations in order to see not only, again, those outcomes improve, but, but disparities close. And, and it's those competencies of, of using data uh, to help communities both confront and then act differently based on uh, the, the disparities that they see, those are some of the competencies that, again, I think, you know, will really determine whether this whole collective impact movement survives. Hmm. So what's interesting, uh, one of the interesting elements about Strive Together is that you have a notion of cradle to career, which we know crosses um, very different systems, early childhood programs, and then our K through 12 public education, and then higher education. How were you seeing the links improve between those different systems in order to really accomplish this vision of a, a cradle to career uh, opportunity for young people? Yeah, it's a great question. And honestly, the, you know, I think a lot of people, when they think about education, they immediately go to K-12 mm-hmm. um, and that there's so many systemic challenges within K-12 systems that, that people seem to feel overwhelmed. I think if you look at the higher ed system, you can see equally as many challenges um, in how it's structured, um, whether it's fully customer-centric, um, meaning are uh, the kids, particularly the most vulnerable, are, you know, is it viewed as the responsibility of the higher ed institution to meet them where they are to help them succeed um, or not? And, and so there's a real, there's challenges both within each of those systems and, and in connecting them in order to ease the, ease the transitions. I think the most exciting work that we see um, is where communities are starting to identify um, they're high-demand career sectors. It could be health, could be advanced manufacturing or technology, um, could be construction. Whatever those high-demand careers may be, um, they're starting to help students earlier on map out what the path is to take advantage of high-demand career opportunities. And they're not tracking them, but they're actually connecting their, their coursework in K-12 to an area of interest where there is high opportunity so that it's not learning for learning's sake alone, it's connected to something that could be more relevant to their lives. And then they're going a step further and actually mapping out what, what is the pathway in higher ed to get to that career if they're interested so that they begin to think not of higher ed as sort of a rite of passage alone, which in many cases it is, but it's a, it's a path to somewhere. And, and when you start to think about it that way, the, the, the gap between K-12 and higher ed starts to disappear. And you see, you, know, you can often see uh, uh, community colleges in particular, but sometimes universities offering courses in high, uh, in high schools um, where you're actually able to, you know, see the kids very easily transition. The, 
the problem of summer melt. Uh, when kids apply to college as a senior, they get accepted but don't show up. That goes away because they're actually already habituated to, to, to college in their high school years, and they're, it's just a lot easier to make that transition. We're starting to see that, and I think, you know, as the data emerges from communities um, around, you know, whether that does actually lead to improved it, not only enrollment but retention and completion rates, hopefully we'll start to see a lot more of this blending across the two systems um, that makes sure that, that they're operating in a very, um, you know, student-centered or, you know, customer-centered way where they are meeting kids where they are um, by helping them connect their learning to areas of interest and simultaneously helping them to, um, uh, you know, potentially land early in their career, uh, you know, in, in, in uh, career sectors where there's real opportunity. Well, I, I tell you, you do have a really unique perch of seeing communities come together to focus on improving educational outcomes for kids at a time when so many people are questioning the effectiveness of our public schools and access to higher education. What gives you hope that we can really um, uh, create real opportunity for all kids so that uh, they can succeed? Uh, that's a great question. I, what gives me hope are, is, one, the staff that we have at Strive Together. They are amazing, um, and they are so um, servant-oriented to help make sure that the communities are succeeding. So that's one thing. And the other thing that gives me hope is the work that the communities are doing. Um, we recently had a, our annual convening where we bring together all in our now 73 communities. Together we bring teams, um, and everybody came together, and we created a huge data walk. Um, where in the ballroom, instead of it being, you know, empty walls that are very nice because, you know, all the conference centers are gorgeous, we actually were able to put on the walls examples from all over the country, like those that I mentioned in Cincinnati, where they found, you know, early childhood practices that work. We had, you know, over a dozen examples of that sort where communities had pinpointed locally practices that worked and then found creative ways using existing resources and then in some cases new, to spread those practices. I mean, it is unbelievable to see um, just the tenacity and, um, and, and perseverance of the communities and, and how they are using data as a flashlight, as I said before, to really build on what works for kids. That's fantastic. Well, I am certainly excited to see what uh, continues to evolve at Strive. Um, I know that you recently um, have made the decision to leave Strive to play a leadership role in the newly formed Balmer Group. Uh, that's a terribly exciting uh, opportunity, and so we are all looking forward uh, to what you will accomplish in this new role. So thank you so much for your leadership at Strive, and thank you so much for joining us today. Congratulations. Thank you very much, and I just want to say, one, how much we've appreciated, um, you know, the, the opportunity to learn with you and your team over the years. Um, this is really messy work, and I think if anything that's been exemplified, it's that, that learning stance, that willingness to fail forward, um, and I hope that others uh, in their relationships, uh, you know, with investors and with um, practitioners will, will model that same willingness to to allow communities and partners to make mistakes, but not just make mistakes and dwell on them, but, but improve. And uh, it's just been a great, it's been a great journey, and, and I'm looking forward to, um, you know, continuing that 
um, and, and work with communities in, in the years to come. We have deeply enjoyed the, the partnership as well, Jeff. All the best. Thank you very much. And I want to thank our listeners for joining as well. If you've enjoyed today's conversation, read our show on Apple Podcasts to help others find us. You can also ask questions and leave us feedback on Twitter using the KCCast hashtag. To learn more about Casey and find notes for today's show, visit us online at aecf.org forward slash podcast and follow the Casey Foundation on Twitter at AECF News. Until next time, I wish all of America's kids and all of you a bright future.